Good morning, church. Good morning. Rocky Balboa once told us that every champion was once a contender who refused to give up. You might remember Rocky Balboa from his fights with Apollo Creed and Mr. T, the underdog fighter from Philly. And he was contending for a shot at the title. And just like Rocky was contending against rivals and contending for the title, you and I are contenders as well. Which brings us to the title of our sermon this morning. Jude tells us that you're a contender. You're a contender in regard to the faith. This morning we're going to look at just a couple of truths from the book of Jude in the New Testament. We're going to look at the fact that you're a contender, but we're also going to look at the fact that we contend against false teachers. We're going to look at the fact that we contend for the one true faith, and we're going to look at the fact that we contend by the one true victor. But before we do that, I'd ask you to join me in a word of prayer as you turn to Jude on page 1308, and ask that you would pray with me and also for me that God would speak to us here this morning through his word. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for the whole counsel of God. Lord, we thank you that there are books that are large and that are heavy theologically, and we thank you that there are small books that still contain just as much of your truth, Lord. God, we pray that your word would go forth with power this morning, and that it would make sense, it would be clear, and it would be working in our hearts to draw us closer to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So if you don't know where Jude is, Jude, if you go all the way to the end of the Bible and turn back a book after Revelation, right before Revelation is the book of Jude. It's really, really tiny, and if you haven't read it before, that's okay. Uh, it's a very unfamiliar book for a lot of people, including myself, before this sermon. So if you don't know it that well, that's okay. We're going to dive right in. We're in Jude, verse 1, says this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it more necessary to write appealing you to contend for the faith. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under a gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." Yet in a like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they have walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. These are shepherds feeding themselves. These are waterless clouds swept along by winds. These are fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. These are wild waves of the sea casting up their foam upon their own shame. These are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all, 
and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Yet now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the, God, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. As we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, your first question might be, who was Jude? I know I didn't, look, I didn't realize who he was when I first read the book because a lot of times we gloss over certain passages of Scripture when they're more unfamiliar to us. Jude actually was a brother of Jesus because if you look at verse 1, it says he's the brother of James who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's kind of a little, that's a little bit cool because who does that mean that his half-brother is? Jesus Christ. He's writing about his own, his own half-brother. And Jude was somebody that didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. If you go throughout the gospel accounts, you see that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him as the chosen one, as the Christ. But afterwards, in Acts chapter 1, it is at that point when, in verse 14, there's a gathering of believers, and it records the fact that Jesus' mother and other believers and also his brothers were there, worshiping. So after the resurrection and the passion, that's when his brothers started to believe in him. And Jude is a book that has a particularly Jewish flavor. So for us who are Western, in Western culture and we're Gentiles for, for the most part, we don't really get a lot of the things that are in Jude. There's a lot of references to things in the Old Testament and also references to things that we are unfamiliar with, which is one of the reasons I wanted to walk through this book this morning. And yet Jude, he was wanting to write about something that was, more e that was easier to write about, our common salvation in Jesus Christ. But instead he said it was necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Which brings us to our very first point this morning, from verse 3. Our, our first main point is this. We contend against false teachers. We contend against false teachers. Look with me at verse 3 and 4 again. I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith, once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for condemnation. What kind of people, Jude? These were ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only, and master, our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These are people from outside of the church that have crept inside and are starting to teach destructive heresies. And because they've come in and they're starting to threaten the flock of God, that's why Jude says, I'm going to write to you to contend for the faith because it is more urgent. And Jude deals a lot with false teachers. Verses 3 through basically 19 deal almost exclusively with false teachers. So the first part of our sermon today is going to be focusing on that. And as we do that, that brings us to our first subpoint under false teachers. Letter A in your outlines. False teachers deny Christ's lordship and promote license to sin. 
False teachers deny Christ's lordship and promote license to sin. How are they denying Christ? They are denying Christ based off of their actions. These people are people that are saying that they follow after God, but their lives testify to something completely different. It's similar to what Titus says in, in chapter 1, verse 16 of his book. It says this, They profess to know God, but they deny Him out by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. And the main way that Jude says that they deny Christ in their actions is that they pervert the grace of God. Now what does that mean? For us to be saved in Jesus Christ, we need salvation by grace through faith. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doings. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Salvation that is given to us through Jesus Christ is completely necessary. It's based off of God, not our own ability. It's not how good we are, how clean our lives are, or how perfect and holy we are. But instead, it's based off of God. And yet what these people are doing is they are taking that unmerited favor that God has given to us and they are twisting it completely on its angle. And they're saying, you know, since God has forgiven us and we have grace and mercy through Jesus Christ, why don't we do whatever we want? Is there a problem with that? There is. Paul, when he's writing the book of Romans, he addresses this issue because this is not the way that salvation is supposed to work for us. Salvation is supposed to work like this. We're supposed to be able to receive God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's mercy so that we can turn from our sins, not run headlong towards it. There's a difference. In Romans 6.14 it says this, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are no longer under the law but under grace. And earlier in the same chapter it says this, are we to say, What are we to say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul answers his own question. He says, By no means... I want you to think back for a second if you have been baptized. Think back to the moment of your baptism. Maybe it was here at Calvary. Maybe it was at a camp when you were young. Maybe it was in upstate or maybe it was down the shore. But think back to that moment. If there was a preacher or a minister who baptized you and you went down into the water, think back to what they said for a second. Did they, did they say, now that you are forgiven, go and do whatever you want? No, usually what the preacher says is something similar to what Paul says in Romans. And he says, you are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in what? Newness of life. We're supposed to be able to have new life in Jesus as we start to be able to follow after God. We're not supposed to go back to our old ways. But I have a question for you guys this morning. Have you ever been in a moment of temptation or in a moment of weakness where Satan started to whisper in your ear, why don't you just indulge yourself a little bit? Because God's grace will cover your sin. Have you ever been in a moment where that thought entered your head and you weren't sure where it came from? In moments like that, we need to be careful in our lives because it's easy for us in moments of weakness to be able to say, well, God's able to forgive me, right? Why don't I just go ahead and pursue my, this sin in my life? But that's not what we're supposed to be in Christ. In, Roman, in, uh, in John Chapter 8, it says that if the Son sets you free, if Jesus Christ sets you free, you are free indeed. We're supposed to be people that are able to walk in newness of life. Now you might say, well then how are we supposed to balance this? Because if you're a believer in Jesus, what happens the moment you sin? And the good news is that in 1 John 2, verse 1, it says this. John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
It doesn't mean that once you're a believer in Jesus, you have to be sinlessly perfect, and if you mess up in any area of your life, your salvation is forfeit. No, that is not the case. But what we should do as believers is we should take our sins seriously, and we shouldn't look to be able to just wait for God to pick up the check and indulge ourselves in our old way of living. And yet, that's what these people are doing. That's why Jude is writing this book, because these people are destroying these baby Christians' theology of what it means to be able to follow after God. And it applies to us today because we need to be able to confront these same false teachings in our lives and not look to be able to take advantage of the grace that God has given us. But these false teachers not only deny Christ's lordship, and they don't just pervert the grace of God into license to sin. They also are ignorant and instinctual. Look with me at verse 8. It says this, Yet in a manner like these people, they also rely on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. What does that mean? That means that they are literally blaspheming or rebuking angels on their own authority. Jude says in verse 9, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They're ignorant. These people are blaspheming glorious ones. That means that they're literally rebuking angels. And Jude is an unfamiliar book because he quotes something that's outside of our kind of sphere of basic influence and our basic understanding of certain things. Because if you're going through the Bible in the year, like remember we said 2018 is supposed to be the year of the Bible, we're trying to read through scripture and you come to Jude and you're like, all right, I'm tracking with you, I'm going through, I'm reading through the Bible and you get to this verse right here and you say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Jude is using this point, he's quoting from something called the Assumption of Moses, not to be able to say that it's scripture, but to be able to emphasize a point. He's saying that if the archangel Michael didn't rebuke angels off of his own authority, then neither should these people. He's using this to be able to emphasize their own ignorance. And they're not just ignorant, but they're also people that are acting according to their own instinct, as it says in verse 10. I have another question for you guys. What is our natural instinct as people? Is it to follow after God and be faithful? Or is it to rebel against him? It's sad to say that our natural default instinct as people is to rebel against God. As I was thinking about this, it's kind of similar to being on a treadmill. Some people love that, some people hate that. But stay with me for a second. If you're on a treadmill, what are you walking towards? You're walking towards the control, the interface, right? And the belt, which direction is it going? Is it pulling it towards the interface or away from it? It's pulling away, right? It's pulling away. And that's similar to our own desires and our own natural instinct. Because in our lives, our natural instinct is not to follow after God. Our natural instinct is to pull us away from God. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We might be good people for a time, but all of us at some point have broken God's law and are sinners. Jeremiah 17.9 says also that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In and of ourselves, our natural instinct is not to be able to follow after God but to instead drift away from him. And that's why it's necessary for us as believers to be able to seek God in every aspect of our lives. We're not called to be able to seek God for just one chapter of our lives. We're not called to be able to seek him for just a moment and then forget about him. We're called to be able to have an active faith that continually seeks out after God. Because if you're on the treadmill and if you're not walking forward, you're going to be slowly going backwards. If you go back far enough, you're going to fall off the treadmill. 
But think about your life for a second. Are you cultivating a relationship with God that is active, that is seeking him in areas of your life? Are you looking to be able to follow him and to draw closer to him and walk closer towards him? That's what we're called to be able to do. And this might be difficult in our lives because we're not just dealing with our own flesh and our own natural instincts, but we're also waging war in the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6 says this, our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are the false teachers that are the ones who are basically trying to be able to act in a way that's according to their own old instincts. And if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, if we're people that say, I want to follow after Jesus, we're called to be able to continually seek out after God in that treadmill and continually walk towards him. Because if we don't, we will drift away. It's not because you're a bad person, it's just because our instincts are evil. And our default instinct is to be able to drift away from God rather than draw closer to him. But as James says, if you will draw near to God, God will draw near to you in your life. And that's why Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Our faith a lot of times is like an endurance race. It's not a sprint. It's not just for one moment of our lives. But it's for the entirety of it. We're supposed to be seeking Christ. And yet Jude, he also speaks of these people in verse 10. He says, they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And that brings us to our third point this morning. Let her see. False teachers are designated for condemnation. False teachers are designated for condemnation. Jude is a book that, although it's small, it has lots of references to judgment. I think, honestly, this is one of the reasons why we skip over it a lot of times as Christians. We're unfamiliar with it because we have lots of references in it to judgment, to difficulty, to God coming down and condemning people. And we might say, that's intense, that's difficult. I don't know if I want to think about that. But some of the examples that Jude gives in verse, in verse 5, it says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. When I first read this, I was like, oh, that's referring to the Egyptians, you know, and like the story of Moses, they go and they follow them through the break in the waters, following the Israelites. But no, it refers instead to the Israelites in Numbers 13, that after they had been delivered from bondage, afterward, after they had been out of Egypt and they were no longer sinners, at that moment they said, let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to our old slave masters. Let's go back to our old ways because we don't want to go into the land because we sent spies in and it is scary. The people there are giants. Jude also references angels. If you've been with us in CBA, you might be more familiar with this. In verse 6 it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. When there was a rebellion and Satan basically rebelled against God in heaven, what he did was he took a third of the angels with him. In Revelation 12, 4, you can look up that reference. And that's when basically Satan rebelled against God and a third of the angels came with him. And God is saying there was a judgment that came upon those who left their own positions of authority. And then he leads up to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is one of the most destructive passages in Genesis. When we had to talk through that, it's not something that's fun to teach on. It's not easy. It's not something that you are like really excited about. You're like, man, this is really tough to talk about. 
But at the end of verse 7, there's a point that's really applicable to all of us. It says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, these also, they serve as an example. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, why would Jude put that in there? Why would Jude include one of the most destructive references in the Old Testament and put it in his book? He's using it basically to make a point that if God is there to judge the people that rebel against him and that follow false teachings, he will do so with people in the future. We're not just supposed to go through the Bible when we see references of judgment, references of difficulty, references to where God comes down and punishes the world. We're not just supposed to look at that and say, oh man, that really stinks for them. No, we're supposed to look at those and say, man, I want to be able to not have the same outcome of those people. I want to be able to learn from their mistakes so that I don't have to go through the same thing in my life. That's why Jude is referencing all these different references to destruction. He talks about the way of Cain. Cain was the very first murderer in human existence. He talks about Balaam's error, who's a prophet for hire, who was later destroyed when the Israelites inherited the promised land. And then at the end of verse 11, it says Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion was a group of people that stood up and opposed God's authority and God's people. And as they did that, the ground literally opened up and it says that they went alive, them and their households, down to Sheol. And Jude is using these strong strong references to be able to emphasize a point. These things serve as examples for us so that we might look at them and learn from them and act differently. Because for us nowadays, we're not going through a time of judgment. We're in the United States of America. We're in one of the most blessed countries in the world. We have hot water. We have houses that are able to heat us in winter, that have heat in winter and are cool in summer. We don't have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. We're in one of the most blessed nations and blessed circumstances in the world. But yet, at the same time, for all of us, Jude is leading up to a point that one day all of us will have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. A good verse, if you're looking to memorize one or look to be able to apply one to your life, is Hebrews 9.27. It says this, It is appointed for man to be able to live once and then face judgment. It is appointed for man to be able to live once and then face judgment. Hebrews 9.27. This is not to be able to scare us, but this is, supposed to be, this is supposed to be able to urge us to live for God because in our lives, if we're just going through and saying everything will work out, we don't have to worry about our lives. No, the fact is that we're all going to have to give an account of our lives to God. And that's what Jude is building up towards. In this whole section, as he's talking about te- false teachers and how they're condemned, he's saying that in the past they were condemned, that in the present they are also condemned, but also in the future. That's when he references verses 14 and 15. It's another reference that's confusing. It says this, It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness. Jude is using this to basically make a point that all of us are going to have to one day stand before God and give an account of our lives. One day, we're all going to have to stand before God, and we're either going to stand before God in wrath or in his favor. And Jude is recording all these things because he's saying, remember what happened to everybody that rebelled against God. Remember to everybody that twisted God's grace and denied God's lordship. Remember what happened to all those people that followed, that followed those false teachings. Look what happened to them. And remember, at the same time, that we are going to have to give an account of our lives to God as well. And it's supposed to be able to encourage us and to urge us to seek out after God because our actions have spiritual consequences. Our actions have spiritual consequences. We don't just go through life and then it ends. 
There's a second life after this. We have to give an account of our lives. And Jude, as he goes through this, he quotes from the book of Enoch. Now, if you're going through the book of Jude and you are confused at this, it's okay. The book of Enoch is an extra-biblical book. It's not in the Bible. You might be like, wait, why is Jude quoting from outside the Bible? I know when I was first reading that, I was super confused. I was like, why is Jude quoting something that's not in the Bible? It's not like you can go in your study Bible and flip back to the book of Enoch because it's not there. And it's really confusing for some of us. And what Jude is doing in this is he's illustrating a point. He's quoting from this saying that it's not scriptural truth, but he's using it to be able to emphasize the point that we're all going to have to stand before judgment in God. You might say, okay, well, I'm not really sure if that's something that's permissible in biblical writing. I want you to think about preaching for a second. If a preacher wanted to emphasize a point, can they quote something from modern culture to be able to emphasize that point? Yeah, they can. If I were to say, if I were to reference something like the Hunger Games, Hunger Games is a book trilogy and was later made into movies, and this was something that is definitely not the Bible, it's not biblical truth, but if I were to quote one aspect of that and say, hey, that's kind of like the Bible, I'd be using that to illustrate a point. In the Hunger Games, there's two sisters in the very first book. Two sisters, one older, one older. If you read the book, you know the older one is called Katniss Everdeen, the younger one is called Prim. And there's uh, a basic situation in this small town where the younger sister is selected for basically a judgment where she's, it's likely that she'll die or that she'll perish. And the older sister says, I volunteer as tribute, basically saying, I will take her place. And in that, she's basically showing the same self-sacrificial love that God shows for us when he went to the cross. Now, that illustration isn't saying that the whole of the Hunger Games is taking a biblical truth, because it's definitely not. If you go and read through it, it's not something that we're supposed to be able to take as the Bible or to basically take as biblical truth. But it's something that we can use to be able to emphasize and to illustrate God's love in our lives. Jude is doing the same thing here. So if you get hung up on the book of Enoch or the other quote, don't get hung up on that, because, God, because Jude is using it to emphasize a point, not to be able to consider it Scripture. But what he is saying is that there are spiritual consequences for our actions. It is appointed for man to be able to live once and then to face judgment. How are you going to be standing before God? Are you going to be standing before God as one who is in his favor? As a believer, as a follower of his son? Or are you somebody that is going to stand before him under his wrath? Jude is urging us to be able to make a decision because there are spiritual consequences for our actions. And what we do in this life echoes in the life to come. But as Jude is talking about that, he ultimately leads up to this point, which is our final point of false teachers. Letter D in your outline, false teachers are deceptive and devoid of the Spirit. False teachers are deceptive and devoid of the Spirit. Have you ever been looking at an advertisement and waiting for it to basically be wonderful when you go and buy something and it's not actually the same? It's kind of similar to basically what Jude is saying. Jude gives a ton of different references in this, and I just want to look at three of them. In verses 12 and through 13, it's, he says basically, he says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude gives a ton of different references, but I want to just look at three of them. Fruitless trees. Anybody ever been apple picking at an apple orchard in the fall? Yeah, some of us have. But if you were to go to an apple orchard, the end of fall, when 
all, every, all the apples are supposed to be ripe, and if they're not ripe, then winter's coming and it's too late for them. And if you were to go to that orchard and look around for apples and you didn't find any, how would you feel? Probably disappointed. If you drove a couple hours to get there, you might be even more disappointed because the apple tree's job is basically to bear apples. If it's not an apple tree, it doesn't have that obligation. But if it's an apple tree, it's that one job of that apple tree is to bear fruit. But if you were to go there and there was no fruit on any of the trees, that would be something that is deceptive and ultimately devoid in its meaning. And Jude is paralleling these illustrations to the false teachers and the false teachings that are going on and circulating in the church. Another one that he quotes is waterless clouds. If you were a farmer in ancient Israel, you, w- you weren't relying off of a river to irrigate your fields. You couldn't irrigate the Jordan River uphill into the hill country and then down into the lowlands by the sea. No, you had to rely on the autumn and spring rains, as the law said and as James quotes. And if you're a farmer and you are waiting to be able to cultivate your field, or you're waiting for that desperately needed rain and you see some clouds coming up over the Mediterranean and they're coming towards you and if you're hoping, man, I hope this is the autumn and spring rains that we've been desperately waiting for for so long. And if they came over and they shadowed out the sun and it looked like it was about to become a thunderstorm and then nothing happened and they blew off, how'd you feel? Frustrated, angry. And Jude is saying that the same thing is true for these false teachers. They have the appearance of being able to help. They have the appearance that they're able to deliver. They have the appearance that they're genuine. But if you really inspect them, they're deceptive and empty and not able to help us. And the last illustration I want to look at from this section is the stars. Jude says that these are wandering stars. If you are a navigator on the sea in the ancient world, and you weren't close to land, and you were trying to basically figure out where you were based off of the stars... If you found a star that wasn't stationary, or if you mistook a constellation for trying to map your location, you could end up in a completely different place. Because that star, it looked like all the others. It looked like it was able to help you. It looked like it was fine. It looked like nothing would happen. But in the end, it brought you to a different destination than the one that you you expected. Jude is saying the same thing is true for false teachers. They seem like they're able to help. They seem like it's okay. They seem like they're genuine, but if you look at their lives, they're deceptive and they're utterly empty instead. Now, this is a point where it gets really difficult to be able to interpret things. I don't know about you, but when I was reading through Jude for the first time, I got really, really scared. Because there's all these references to judgment, and there's times where I feel like, man, I feel like I've been deceived by this. I feel like I haven't been perfect in this regard. I feel like that I've been kind of similar to a lot of these different things. And, I, and as we go through Jude, this doesn't apply to born-again believers. If you're saying, hey, is this, is this some, something that I'm doing? This doesn't apply to born-again believers. This applies to people who believe sayings like the following. I want saving, but I don't need a savior. I want forgiveness, but no confession. I want cleansing of my sins, but I don't want my life to change at all. I want eternal life forevermore, but I don't want Jesus. I just want the get-out-of-hell-free card. You see the difference, church? There's a difference, and we don't want to misinterpret that. As we go through Jude, this is applying to those who are trying to basically work God's system for their own gain. It doesn't apply to born-again believers, but it does affect us. I was sharing a gospel, the gospel with a friend of mine one time, and he was, you know, thinking, he's like, I don't know if I really want to believe this and stuff, because it's, it's a challenging thing to be able to wrap our minds ahead around. But you know the thing that 
kept him from coming to faith for a long time was people like this. People that said, since I'm forgiven in Jesus, I can do whatever I want, and there's no problem with that. There's a difference between us being forgiven. There's a difference between a believer that is struggling because you're going to struggle at different points. That's why we have an advocate. That's why Christ still covers our sins in the past, in the present, in the future because God knows that we're not going to be sinlessly perfect. But this man who was trying to come to the knowledge of God was hung up off of the people who basically said, I'm a believer, but my life doesn't show it. And we had a talk and I was able to explain to him that, you know, the Bible references with very strong references those who try to twist God's salvation for their own gain. Later on, God graciously brought him into his family and he's able to receive God. But the thing that held him up was people who were claiming to be genuine, like those illustrations, claiming to be a star that was useful for navigation, claiming to be a tree that was able to bear fruit, claiming to be a cloud that was able to bring much needed rain. But when it came down to it, when you were examined and you were expected to be able to help the person in need, these false teachers were empty and utterly devoid of the Spirit. That's because they didn't know God, although they tried to in their lives. Salvation is a two-part thing, Romans says. Romans says that you must believe in your heart, but you also must confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confessing with your mouth, I'm able to see that. I'm able to hear you. I'm able to see or to hear you say that, yeah, I prayed to be able to receive God. But the second aspect of that is believing in your heart. And only two people know if you actually did that, and that is you and God. That's the way that God has put together salvation in a wonder-what-full way for us. It's not something that people can twist and work for their own gains. Scripture says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. But be encouraged, church. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not a false teacher. You are not somebody that's going to go through these judgments. You have some, you're somebody that's going to receive the favor of God. And I want to talk about that. False teachers are a big topic in Jude, but it's not the end of Jude, thank God. There's more hope to, to come. And that brings us to our second main point this morning. Our second mo- main point this morning is this, that we contend not just against false teachers, but for the one true faith. Rocky wasn't just contending against Apollo Creed, but he was also contending for the title when he was in his boxing match. Look at verse 19 with me. It says, these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But then verse 20, there's a huge contrast that flips the context. And it says this, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The hope and the difference between those who are false teachers is that those who are false teachers are ultimately devoid of the Spirit of God. And those who are believers, you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. At the very moment of salvation, when you yield your life to Christ, at that moment, God sends His Holy Spirit to come and to be able to indwell and live inside of you. This is what Romans says about that. It says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells within you, then he will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. We have a hope, we have a difference, because inside of us as believers, we have the Holy Spirit of God that is able to change us. We're not devoid of the Holy Spirit, but we have God's spirit within us. And yet, as Jude writes, he says that we're supposed to do several things. We're supposed to be building ourselves up in the faith. But you might ask, how are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to be building ourselves up in the faith? You might say, yeah, let's build ourselves up in the faith. But practically, what does that look like? In Acts 
Chapter 20, it says this, verse 32, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. One of the main ways that God works in our lives is through the Spirit, but also through his word. That's why we're challenging everyone to be able to read through the Bible in a year. Not so that you can check off a box and feel great about yourself because you're extra holy. No, because we believe that God's word is able to change us from the inside out. It's not like another book. It's not like the Hunger Games. It's not like the Quran. It's not like any other book in the entire world. It is the living word of God and it is able to work and change your heart and to build you up and draw you closer to God. But not only that, but we're supposed to be also praying, verse 20 says, in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit. We're not just to be people that are praying just for what we want, but we're supposed to be praying in accordance with God's will. That doesn't mean that when you pray for something, you're trying to use Jesus' name to get you a wish list like Santa Claus. doesn't mean that you're like, hey, God, you know, I really want a new car. Uh, in Jesus' name, see if it happens. No, that's, basically, that's Santa Claus Jesus. That's not a real Jesus. That's something that you're twisting to try to basically profit yourself. The real thing that God is trying to basically encourage us to do is to be able to pray in accordance with God's word and pray in the Holy Spirit. That means that we pray, Lord, would you do these things if it is your will? Would you be saving my coworker? Would you be encouraging my family member? Would you be working and healing this person that is in medical need? Would you be helping these situations? And as 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, we're supposed to be praying without ceasing because we have a hotline to heaven. We're able to talk to the God of the universe. God isn't looking up there with his arms crossed, shaking his head. No, he's looking to be able to help his children here on the earth. And as James says, we often have not because we ask not. Are we a church that is asking for God to be able to do things in our lives? I was challenged when I was a young person and I was in youth group. Somebody said to me, if God were to answer every single one of your prayers, whose world would change? Would your world change, or would the lives of other people be affected as well? And that was something that greatly affected me. Because in that moment, a lot of times I just take, before I got a grocery list of what I want. But we should be bringing the needs of others before people as well, before God. We should be bringing the needs of others, our family members, our coworkers. If you're trying to be able to share Christ with people around you, don't just walk into that situation and try to do it. Pray beforehand. Pray for God to be able to change that person's heart because the one thing that you and I can do is testify to Jesus. But the, one of the things that God is able to do is change people's hearts. And that's something that we cannot do in none of our own power. And yet... We're also supposed to be keeping ourselves in the love of God, verse 21 says. Keeping ourselves in the love of God. That's a theme throughout Jude. We're not just supposed to say, hey, I'm going to follow after God for this moment in my life. I'm not just going to follow after God when I'm young and excited and I have energy or for this section of my life. No, I'm going to give my entire life to Jesus. How's your relationship with God doing? Remember that treadmill. If we're not walking towards God, we are drifting away from him. Our old instincts are going to pull us further and further away from him. They're not going to pull us further and, for, and closer and closer to him. We have to be cultivating our relationship with Jesus. We have to be actively seeking him in our lives. God doesn't want to just have your box checked as Christian. He wants to be able to walk with you in a relationship through your life, through the difficult things you're going through, through the things that are great success, and through the times where you feel like it's the valley of the shadow of death. God wants to walk with you through every aspect of your life, not just for a season where things are good and when you need him. God is able to help us throughout our entire lives. And not only that, but we also are supposed to be people who are continuing to minister to those in need. Almost at the very end it says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy, verse 22, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. 
We're supposed to be encouraging people when they have doubts. We're not supposed to say, hey, don't have questions. Don't question God. Don't think through things. Have a blind faith that doesn't trust in anything and just leap and follow God. No. We're supposed to be able to encourage people who have doubts, encourage people who have questions, and help foster them in their walks with God. But not only that, we're also supposed to save others out of the fire, snatch them out of the fire. That's an interesting phrase that Jude uses. Remember Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed for man to be able to live once and then face judgment. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to walk into judgment with God. You're going to be having his favor upon you. But other people in the world don't know Jesus. Other people in the world need to be able to hear the message of God. And that's why Jude is encouraging us to be able to share the gospel and minister to those in need. It means that we're trying to be able to help other people because if you don't follow after Christ, it doesn't just mean it's a different lifestyle. It means that it's a different destiny as well. And Jude has already illustrated the different destiny. If you rebel against God, if you twist God's grace, if you deny Christ's lordship, if you try to do all those things and act according to your own instincts, then there will be a condemnation for those people. And yet the good news is that God has given us a pardon through his son, and all we have to do is to be able to accept it. But we want to be sharing that message with other people. We're not just to go through life and to just be thankful for the things in our life. We're supposed to be ministering to those around us as well. Ministering to those who are co-workers, ministering to those who we see, ministering to our clients and other people that we interact with. Let's be people who are sharing Christ with those around us. And yet at the very end of 23, it also says, yet hating the garment stained by the flesh. Jude is a book that is powerful because it says that we're still supposed to hate sin. That's what that means. When we say we're supposed to hate the garment that is stained by the flesh at the end of 23, it is saying that we are supposed to minister to people, share God's goodness with them, share the gospel with them, but we're still supposed to be able to hate sin. We're not to allow it to fester in our lives. Now, as I said, Jude is a very small book, but it's a very powerful book. And as you go through it, you might be like, man, this is intense and it's kind of heavy. If you get to the end of Jude, you're probably out of steam because it's it's quite emotionally involving because there's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of challenging things in there. You might be like, man, this is tough. But the best part of Jude is the very end of it. And that brings us to our last point today. We contend not by our strength, not by our own holiness, but by the one true victor, Jesus Christ. We contend by the one true victor, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to our only God and Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. God is the one who is able to keep us from stumbling. As we go through life and as you're on that treadmill and as your natural instinct is to pull you away from God, God is the one who enables you to be able to walk towards him and to seek him. God is the one who is able to keep us within his grace. He is the one who is able to help us as we walk forward in our lives. And as we go through our lives, and remember we talk a lot about judgment in this passage, be of good cheer because there's hope for us. Because when you stand before Jesus, you're not going to be standing before him, if you're a believer, based off of your own righteousness. If you are saying, I'm going to trust in my own righteousness and my own goodness and how many Bible verses I memorized and how often I went to church, any of us will fail. Because we are, even our righteous deeds are like polluted garments before God. But the good news for us as believers in Christ is that we have his righteousness imparted to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
in us is not our own righteousness, but when God looks at you as a believer in Jesus Christ, he sees the righteousness of his own son who went to the cross and paid the penalty for all of our sins so that we might no longer walk according to our sins, but that we might walk in newness of life. And he's the one who's able to do things. Jude opens up his letter in the very beginning with a little detail. He says, to those who are called of God, beloved of God, and kept for Jesus Christ. The one who called us is not yourself. None of us found God based off of our own heart and our own seeking for righteousness. It was God who called us. The one who loves us, the God who loves you, if you feel it or not, God loves you, cares for you, wants to be able to have a relationship and walk with you through whatever you're going through in your life. And not only that, but the one who's able to keep you until the day of your glory with Jesus Christ is Jesus. Our strength will fail. Our wisdom will wear out. There will be times when we're not able to continue on. But the best hope in our life is that we rely not on our own strength or our own goodness or our own perfection, but we rely on Jesus in our lives. And that's why we need to be able to remember what Judas told us. Because there's going to be times where we're going to be a contender. There's going to be times where we are going to be contending against false doctrines and against false teachings, and we need to be able to oppose those false teachings and not just submit to them. The reason we are able to know they're false is if we know God's word. Do you know God's word well enough to be able to recognize falsehood from truth? And not only that, we're supposed to be able to contend for our faith. Are you somebody that is building yourselves up in, in your walk with God? Are you cultivating a relationship with Jesus? Are you in his word? Are you going through the Bible in a year? Are you praying in the Holy Spirit? Are you continuing to minister to those who are in need? Who, if they don't hear the gospel, they will enter into God's judgment. But ultimately, are you relying on Christ? Because he is our rock, he is our strength, he is our foundation, and he is the one who has called us, he is the one who loves us, and he is the one who will keep us in himself, the one who's able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before God based off of his righteousness and not us. Is God, is through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, we thank you for the fact that you are a God who loves us, who cares for us. And you also are a God who is just, and you don't want people to be able to twist the good things that you have given to us. Lord, would you help us to be a people that know your truth? Would you help us to be a people that understand your word and are able to be able to confront false teachers and false teachings and be able to not just succumb to them and to be able to give in to them? Lord, would you enable us to be able to also contend for our faith, Lord? We're called to be able to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. Lord, would you help us to know the hope that is in us? Would you help us to know you? Would you help us to be walking towards, forward, seeking you and not seeking our old ways? Lord, would you transform us? But God, ultimately, Lord, may we not do it based off of our own wonderfulness. Would you help us to not base it off of our own strength? But would you help us to be completely and utterly reliant on your greatness, your goodness, your love for us, your calling, your grace, and your mercy. God, I pray that you would empower us to be able to do these things and to be able to cast all of our anxieties upon you because you care for us and trust you to be the one to help us as we go through life. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.